Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vincent. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you have not picked up a copy of our latest book, I show it right there, The Infinite for Little Minds, The Doctrine of God for Children. This is a great way to introduce your children to basic concepts surrounding the doctrine of God in a somewhat devotional format, storybook format that can help engage them and bring those concepts down to their level. Endorsed by Dr. Timothy Decker and Dr. Craig Carter. Uh, pick up your copy today if you have not. Hopefully this is very helpful. All right, all plugging aside, I want to introduce our guest today, Dr. Dolzall, Dr. James Dolzall, professor at Caring University and visiting professor at International Reformed Baptist Seminary. And this is actually Dr. Dolzall's fourth time on the podcast. He's becoming somewhat of a regular now. <laughs> but Dr. Thanks, Dolzall, Dan. We, I'm, I'm glad to be back on for a fourth time. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we appreciate your knowledge and your time and, and looking forward to a more great discussion. Um, so kind of the, the discussion this evening is a little bit different than what we've had in the past with Dr. Dolzo. We focus a lot on theology proper in the past, and I, we had a, a session on providence and looking at that. But we're going to take kind of a, a different turn this evening and talk about uh, social issues to some extent, uh, you know, religious freedom freedom of conscience and, and what those things or religious toleration of freedom of conscience and kind of what those things look at historically and how can we start to kind of draw these things out, um, you know, and, and apply them to our lives. Um, so we're looking at this really from John Owen's perspective, and this is kind of in line with an article that Dr. Dolezal had written um, some years ago uh, surrounding Owen's understanding of these concepts. And so I, I thought it'd be good to kind of mine some of these, um, you know, these things out of that article and discuss some of these concepts. So Dr. Dolezal, as you know, as we're looking at John Owen and his dealings with liberty of conscience and toleration, what were some key historical events surrounding him that led him to really focus on that issue? Really, he was he was born into a world where nonconformity to the Church of England um, was almost an accepted feature of English church life, even of state church life at that point. And we should maybe quickly, he was born in um, 1618, and we should brief, or 1616, sorry, and we should point out that nonconformity or even Puritanism, as we would sometimes describe it, though not all Puritanism is necessarily nonconformist. Uh, some Puritanism can be perhaps even extremely conformist, uh, or at least aiming to be. So those are not necessarily the same thing. Uh, but this is something that goes on within the Church of England, and it has a background. It really, The background really is the, the Protestant Reformation in England. And of course, the, the big question in Reformation history studies is whether there was a Protestant Reformation in England. Um, I, I'm inclined to say that there was, but that it, the features of it were so unusual uh, and different than what we find on the continent. Really, it's because Henry VIII wanted a divorce, as everyone says. Uh, it, it comes down to the magistrate. And the hand of the magistrate, this is, this is very important to recognize, the, the direct hand of the magistrate in the affairs of the English church gives it an extraordinary and, and altogether unique character in comparison to other reformations. I mean, even the protection someone like Luther was given 
by the Elector of Saxony, Frederick the Wise, and then John of Saxony. Uh, this was not Frederick. Uh, Frederick and John were not masterminding it. They were not, as it were, steering that ship every step of the way. They were offering protection, undoubtedly, to Luther and to his followers. But in England, it's an entirely different matter. Um, as it goes with the king or queen, uh, as it is, um, so it goes with the nation. Edward the Sixth, the boy king, uh, who took to the throne after Henry VIII died at, I think, age nine and died at age 16, uh, did a great deal to advance the cause of really reformed flavored Protestantism, most especially in the person and work of his Archbishop Thomas Cramner, uh, who started out loving Luther, but you can kind of see a, a, a movement toward, gen toward a more Genevan style reformation. Uh, in Cramner, and there he prepares a prayer book. The prayer book is very Calvinistic. Um, even their view of the Lord's Supper kind of tends in that direction. Um, and Cramner writes two prayer books. Uh, 1552 is the second one, uh, and then uh, he's martyred under Bloody Mary. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth comes to strangely, all three of uh, the whole thing about uh, Henry wanting to get a divorce is that he wants a male heir. He finally gets a male heir. The male heir dies as a teenager. And then his oldest daughter, the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, who's a staunch Catholic, her daughter Mary comes to the throne. Uh, and Mary starts a bloody persecution of all the Protestants seeking to reestablish Roman Catholicism. And then Mary dies just. Year, just a few years after taking the throne in 1558, and Elizabeth ascends, Elizabeth I, and Elizabeth is on the throne until 1603. And that's a long reign, 1558 to 1603. And Elizabeth is, uh, she's very, she's shrewd, but she's very authoritative, and mm -hmm. she manages the English church. And there's, there's a sense in which in 1662, 63, when the 39 Articles of Religion are sort of minted uh, for the Anglicans, it's very Calvinistic, and a lot of reformational-minded churchmen thought that that was a step in the direction of further reform. Mm. So they weren't, they, but what really it was in Elizabeth's mind was this was it. This was going to be the extent of the Reformation. They thought of it as a beginning. She thought of it as an end. Uh, of what the Reformation uh, in England would look like. And so immediately there began to be questions of liberty and freedom of conscience. Uh, am I in fact bound to certain rituals and practices of the Roman or Anglo uh, church? Um, crossing Crossings in baptism, um, weird even practices like force like interrogating children infants at their baptism which is just kind of a strange uh, practice wearing of certain vestments the surplice um placements of the table or the or the alleged altar um all these questions and then and then also even on questions of things indifferent adiaphora um is it the prerogative of the church or the magistrate to compel the practice to compel the practice in things indifferent in the worship of God of the individual clergy, or should the things indifferent be left to each one's own convictions? And so that's where the sort of the agitating um, begins inside the English church. And this is all lying in the background of the world into which Owen's going to be born. Uh, the other complicating factor and, and interesting, I mean, I mean, really hard 
complicated factor is the policy of James I. James I comes to the throne in 1603 and then is on the throne until he dies in 1625. And James is peculiar uh, as a magistrate, as a king, because he's actually the king of three different kingdoms at once. Mm. He's already King James VI of Scotland when he becomes King James I of England. So King James VI, and he still remains King James VI of Scotland. So he's he's overseeing the national Scottish church, the national English church, and then he also rules Ireland. And these, the, but the, the um, governing bodies of these countries are not one. This is not Great Britain yet. Uh, mm -hmm. This is really three distinct kingdoms with a single king, uh, but different parliaments, different rules, different armies, cultures even. Um, and so there's something about J James having to hold together the rule of three kingdoms tends to just by virtue of political necessity be a bit of a compromiser or at maybe maybe to put it a little differently skilled in the art of the deal um <laughs> he he has to negotiate with a whole variety of people and customs and culture so much as there is difference uh, among those probably more difference among them then than there is now um and so the nonconformists in the Church of England, um, the dissenters, who are still Anglicans, uh, even before James gets to London, they they send an entourage up to meet him, and they permit they present to him what's called the millenary petition, which is millenary because it's signed by over a thousand ministers, uh, petitioning for lenience with regard to um, required use of the prayer book. Mm -hmm. The wearing of certain vestments, the interrogation of infants in the baptism, uh, all sorts of things that they thought were either absurd, anti-biblical, or at least not biblically demanded of them. And they were seeking freedom from him and all of those things. He, he's, really, he's, a, he's an interesting guy. He didn't really give them any of that. And yet he nevertheless, but he's the sort of guy who could tell you no but make you feel like he was telling you yes. Uh, so, so he, whereas Elizabeth did not have that. Elizabeth just said no, and that's it. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas James, James actually understood how to be conciliatory to people. Mm. And so he referred the, the millenary uh, uh, petition over to the parliament, which was said to, at least some numbers say, that the, par the, the House of Commons at that time was populated by something like upwards like two-thirds nonconformists. Of course, all Anglicans, but two-thirds has sentiments with nonconformists. It's a populist wow. type body. And so he let the people's representatives in the parliament debate and discuss their petitions. And so I guess I, what I want to say is they felt like they were being given the time of day by James, whereas they hadn't been by Elizabeth. Um, also, James is just ironic. He's anti-Puritan. Uh, but then he hires John Preston, a Puritan, to be the private tutor of his son, Charles. He's, he's ant, he's, he's sympathizes with Calvinism. I mean, this is a guy who sent delegates to the Synod of Dort on behalf of England. Um, and 
he favors Calvinistic doctrine, but he doesn't mind promoting Arminians uh, inside the Church of England. He doesn't like seditious Arminians, usurpatious Arminians, but he's going to kind of um, leaven the, uh, the Calvinistic guild with some Arminianism in it as well. And this is just part of his art of the deal is he doesn't really allow a, a hegemony for one particular interest group and each one of them feels like they're getting a little something that they want from James the first. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Owen is born in that 1616. So he's, he's born nine years before James dies. So that's, that's the King of his boyhood. Um, and in one respect, there was peace. Uh, the archbishop of Canterbury uh, at the time in the 1620s at the time of James's death was a man by the name of Abbott. He was a strong Calvinist. Uh, he refused to, he was, he, what he did advocate for and support the burning of heretics. Um, something that Owen, this is going to be interesting. Owen is going to come along and say, we should stop burning heretics. <laughs> uh, even though the Calvinists of just of the generation of his boyhood advocated it, but Ab, this, this will sound strange, but Abbott was quite restrained in the burning of heretics. And I'm not saying isn't he great. I'm just when someone was brought up on charges uh, for, sympathi for sympathizing with um, Baptistic and Congregationalist um, sentiments and, and uh, Brownist sentiments, and somebody wanted, somebody advocated for the death penalty, and they asked Abbott to support it, and Abbott refused to endorse the death penalty. And his reason for it was that the man held to the 39 Articles of the Church of England and to the first four ecumenical councils of the church and to the first three original uh, creeds. And mm -hmm. so, in other words, he may have sympathies that seem like dissent or irregular on ecclesial matters or even on liturgical matters, but Abbott still had the wherewithal to regard him as an Orthodox Christian and therefore no heretic and not to be burned. Mm -hmm. So there's a, I don't know, is that toleration? Yeah, that's a, it's a kind of talk. Like he's, it's interesting. This comes up with Owen. We're, we'll move to Owen, I think, in a second together. But this, Owen has this whole thing about toleration. And he's really, he, a few times he brings up that we need to tolerate people who agree in the fundamentals. And he'll call it that, in the fundamental things, um, or we might even call them primary areas of doctrine as opposed to secondary and tertiary. And he seems to acknowledge that Presbyterians, of which he was once one, and then he left Presbyterianism to become a Congregationalist in 1646, and also Episcopalians um, could, in fact, be in agreement on the fundamentals and therefore should not be treated as heretics and they should even be tolerated. Um, he didn't think that they should be able to dominate the Church of England because he saw he saw a kind of oppressive tendency in those groups. But he also didn't think you should shut them down. Uh, and he advocated for Well, we'll talk about that in a second. But this is so this is the world he's born into. Now, in 1625, Charles I um, ascends to the throne upon his dad's death. And Charles does not have his dad's knack for negotiation. Mm. Charles, Charles can tell you no. And it will feel like he's screaming no. <laughs> In other words, like he's whatever whatever his dad had, he does not have that that skill of diplomacy. Um, also, his sympathies, unlike his dad's, are um, very definitely Arminian. And there were certain Arminians of a um, sort of militaristic bent who sought 
position and power under James I, and he would not allow it. And some of these were given extraordinary favor and advancement by Charles I, most, most notoriously of all of them, William Laud. Mm. And Archbishop Laud came to ascendancy while Owen uh, was uh, a student at Oxford University. And Laud, Laud was an absolute uniformity, uh, uh, uniformity, uh, forced uniformity advocate and sought to impose certain regulations on the Church of England and demand conformity, where there had always been this sort of fuzzy gray area under James where you could omit certain things without, you know, being brought, being, you couldn't be seditious, but you could just sort of quietly withdraw from certain mm -hmm. things and get away with it. Laud brought it into all of that. It was the hammer. It was the law uh, of Laud. And it was a uh, very Anglo-Catholic, very high church um, and high church with all of, as we say, the smells and the bells and th and interestingly things indifferent. I mean, what Owen really didn't like about Laud was not that everything Laud said that they should do was against Holy scripture. It's that it's it's back to the regulative principle question. Mm -hmm. It's that scripture neither commanded it nor gave any example of it. And even if it was a thing indifferent, like perhaps wearing the surplice or using the sign of the cross in baptism, for instance, I don't think mm -hmm. Owen would have said scripture forbids you to use the sign of the cross in any context whatsoever liturgically. I don't think he would have said that. What he would have said is no church has a right to compel that practice from you. And you have every freedom to withhold from that thing indifferent. Mm. And that no one binds your conscience with regard to those things that scripture neither commands nor gives any example of. So that was that was his. The other concern he had with Laud is he he associates, and this might seem strange to us because high church Anglicanism was actually in moments of its history very Calvinistic, but he sees it as connected to Arminianism in this way. Um, Arminianism prizes a certain um, primacy of the human will with regard to the response to the call of the gospel, um, so that the human will seems to be the final arbiter in the decision to receive Christ or not. And this is the connection to sort of the, um, the man-made innovations in worship, the things that go beyond precept and example, uh, is he's, he calls it will worship, will worship. And the idea is that my will is free to impose and compel forms of worship beyond the revealed will of God. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how he sees the connection. If my will is the final arbiter in whether I receive Christ or not, and my will is now the final arbiter in with regard to um, the particular features and practices in our liturgy, and so he, he sees that as the common connection. It's the strong Arminians that are also the, um, the, one, the ones who are keen to impose human innovations into the worship of God. He leaves Oxford in protest. And this is really his first, this is his first act of nonconformity. And it's so early, still a student, uh, that costs him something. Mm. I mean, he, he, had he had already received two degrees from Oxford uh, about his equivalent of a bachelor's and a master's degree, uh, but did not receive an, uh, his doctorate, but withdrew 
uh, because Laud, Laud was stationed in Oxford and Oxford was like ground zero for these impositions. And he felt like it, vi it violated uh, his convictions about what was proper worship. Interestingly, Oxford 20 years later would grant him an honorary doctorate. Um, and in from 1552 to 1557, he would actually be the vice chancellor of the entire university, uh, which is, and the chancellor, of course, was Oliver Cromwell. Mm -hmm. So for all intents and purposes, and who's running the whole country at the time as right. the, as the Lord protector. Uh, so for all intents and purposes, um, Owen becomes uh, sort of the, the chief operating officer of Oxford University for five years, uh, the very school he left in protest over these issues, uh, over issues of nonconformity in his youth. So that's, like that kind of gets you into his young age and those, those that's the context. Laud, Laud forces people who have nonconformist tendencies to decide whether they're, how, how publicly they're going to stand by those tendencies. Mm. Um, and it turns out that many Englishmen did stand by them. And it wasn't just people like Owen who later became a congregationalist. It was, it, uh, there were probably some, some Episcopalians, uh, who thought that this for, that this severe forced uniformity was over much, but especially Presbyterians and congregationalists who prior to, uh, the English civil wars of the 1640s under, under law, they were all co-belligerents. They were suffering together as nonconformists. What, what couldn't be seen though, when they were suffering as nonconformists under the rigors of Laud, what couldn't be seen is how principled their nonconformity was. Did they all have, this is what I was interested in with Owen. You can share, not, you can share the plight of nonconformity or even dissent with someone. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you have the same view of nonconformity or dissent. And the real test of what your convictions are regarding nonconformity and dissent are going to be evidenced when the pressures are removed. Mm. Once, once, you know, when you're all suffering together, the cause is resisting the, resisting the pressure. But then once the pressure is gone, uh, how principled is your nonconformity? Do you still defend it when you don't need, when you don't need indulgence anymore, when you don't need to be indulged? When, in fact, when you have the power, maybe that's the question. Mm -hmm. When you have the power, do you still argue for freedom of conscience and toleration for those that don't agree with you? Mm. And Owen, Owen's discovery... <laughs> Let's, this is the particular Baptist podcast, so this is the time to, <laughs> to just get, get out there and air our grievances, Daniel. Um, it turns out that many of the Presbyterians who had suffered under Laud as nonconformists uh, were not particularly interested in a kind of principled implementation of nonconformity as the settlement of the English church. They wanted the, they wanted toleration for themselves, but they weren't necessarily inclined to give it to others once they had attained to the ascendancy of power. This is a, I don't, is that, is that kind of, I guess that puts us on the eve of the Westminster confession mm -hmm. or Westminster uh, assembly. 
So maybe, yeah, maybe no, I should I, stop there. That's just all <laughs> kind of the big context of prelude. No, that's helpful. And I, I think when, especially when, when we're going to be talking about liberty of conscience then in the 17th century versus how we see it now, that historical background, I think, helps inform that because we're so far removed from that context. And so I think, you know, as we're defining these things, it helps us to put things in perspective. Owen's three volumes, I think it's I think it's 13, 14, 15 is almost all entirely taken up with these sorts of questions. Mm. And I I think they're relatively neglected because of that, especially for mm. North Americans or even even British Christians after 1689, after the Act of Toleration. Mm -hmm. um, in some respect, this whole question about schism and toleration and nonconformity and liberty of conscience those questions don't disappear but they're they're so radically recontextualized after mm -hmm. that moment um once once there's an act of toleration or in the case of north america where you have a separation of church and state right um yeah those are and those questions are perennial questions it's just the way you're like working it out is going to be very different than the ecclesial and, and political context of Owen during his career. And he yeah. dies before the act of toleration. He dies in 1683. Right. So he, he never actually lives to see nonconformity receive official indulgence from the crown or toler okay. official toleration from the crown. I say he never lives to see it. I guess he does in a way, but not from the crown. Right. <laughs> uh, for, for 11 years, there was no crown. They took the head off of Charles the first in 1649. And you have the interregnum period between I mean, work for Cromwell. Kings. So yeah, you have Cromwell and Cromwell's Cromwell's no king. Uh, right. And so you, you have 11 years with no crown until Charles the second comes back in 1660. So I guess he I mean, it's true during those during that period, those that was the golden age mm -hmm. for him. That was that was him running Oxford. Um, sort of a, you know, in thick as thieves with with uh, Oliver Cromwell uh, had already accompanied him in the 1640s as his chaplain during the civil wars to Ireland and to Scotland. And um, this and he had I mean, he had he never had more power and political influence than he did during the middle of the 1550s. And that's actually an intriguing period of time to see what kind if you know suddenly does he even care about toleration anymore when he doesn't need it and this is what really is remarkable to me he's still writing treatises about schism and toleration when he has no personal need for it and so you can just there's something remarkable about the principled nonconformity as opposed to the convenient non -con convenient mm -hmm. defense of nonconformity as opposed to a principled defense of it uh, so maybe we should talk about the Westminster Assembly just briefly. Owen sure. was not a member of it. There's that 19th century painting, if you know, with I, I think it's Philip Nye, who is appealing to William Twist, who's sitting on the throne, so to speak, as the moderator of the assembly. And he's I love that painting, even though it's probably a little bit high geographic, uh, in which the dissenting brethren who were members of the assembly, that is to say, the Congregationalists, Philip Nye, Sidrock Simpson, Jeremiah Burroughs, and two others that I can't remember offhand uh, are, are making a plea for toleration and liberty of conscience. And it's congregationalists pleading with the Presbyterian majority not to compel them to be Presbyterians at the point of a sword. Hmm. That's what they're, that's what they're begging for. Uh, now, 
it's uh, in 1646. Owen Owen switches his position. I'm gonna. The, Owen's not at the assembly. He's a kind of he's a minor figure at this point. He's he's going to become a big deal quickly because of his connection to Cromwell. Uh, but he's not a member of the assembly. He's a Presbyterian minister at the start of the year. He changes his mind and resigns his church. So he's a Presbyterian and then changes his. Now he wasn't. He didn't want to change his mind. He was actually he read a book on the keys of the kingdom by John Cotton, a Congregationalist minister in Boston. Mm -hmm. And he read Cotton's book to refute it. And it's not very long. It's really almost like a pamphlet. And in the course of seeking to refute Cotton, his mind was changed and he was persuaded of Cotton's position on ecclesiology. Um, and he gives, and in there, in, in there, he then begins to make his arguments for why congregational polity by congregational he doesn't mean congregation votes on everything type policy he just means that the ultimate court of appeal and the power of the keys to bind and to loose what he really means is to excommunicate people or communicate them to to say your your profession of faith is credible or not credible really that that ultimate ceiling of authority lies within the structure of the local church itself. Um, and that while you can appeal your situ your, your court, your church case to a court of, not really a court of appeals to a body of advisors at the general assembly level, there is a, there is a scale in which if you think you, if you're aggrieved at the judgment you got at the local church, you can take your grievance uh, beyond your local church. But what you can't get beyond your local church is a reversal, is a reversal of judgment. Mm -hmm. What you might be able to get is a cloud of witnesses and counselors that would come back in an advisory capacity to those who had judged your case and advise a reversal of judgment. But that the ultimate ceiling of authority with regard to the keys of the kingdom lies with lies within the structure of the local church government. And so he resigned his, and that's not Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism, it ultimately lies with the general assembly. Yep. Um, that's where the old that's that's the that's the Supreme Court of the church. And he would say the Supreme Court of the church lies within the congregation together with its rightfully uh, instituted officers. So uh, he changes his mind and he writes in defense, although it's interesting, he writes in defense of nonconformity in 1646. It's hard. We don't know. We don't know exactly. We know that he started out at one church and he resigned it and moved to Kagashal, this other little congregation that was Congregationalist uh, by the end of the year. We don't know exactly when he wrote uh, a little defense of nonconformity, but it it seems probable that he wrote the defense of nonconformity when he may very well have still been a Presbyterian, but it's also possible that he wrote it because while he was a Presbyterian, he was seriously thinking of defecting mm. to congregationalism. <laughs> and at the very moment, the Westminster assembly is seriously debating uh, whether congregationalism will even be lawful in the new settlement of the church of England that they were working on. And so perhaps he is, in fact, in his own defense, kind of making the case with the dissenting brethren, though he wasn't one of them, uh, that, that you should put up with us. Whatever settlement we have for the Church of England, it should be able to fit people who aren't actually Presbyterians. 
Uh, I mean, they lost. I mean, as far as the case goes in the Westminster Assembly, they lost. Um, I have a, I mean, I have some theories about why they lost. Um, I'll put it this way. They were in a civil war with the king. You have the royalists fighting the parliamentarians. The parliamentarians uh, needed uh, the help of the Scottish fighting the king in the north. The Scottish sent not actual members of the assembly, but they sent six delegates or advisors uh, down to the Westminster Assembly. So while while the while the parliamentary army is off fighting the battle, Parliament has also commissioned the divines to meet and write up a new settlement for the Church of England, which was the Westminster Standards. Um, and there's a certain sense in which bringing the Scots into the picture for the parliamentarians was good politics. Uh, because we needed Scottish help in the middle of this bat in the middle of this war. But also that put the thumb on the scale in favor of Presbyterianism in a big way. Right. While they weren't voting members of the assembly, they're going to insist in no uncertain terms that Presbyterianism ought to be what the English church settles on. So there are some, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to like discount the Westminster Assembly's well-held Presbyterianism, but we have to remember there were Episcopalians who never subscribed to Presbyterianism, who were members of the Assembly and also Congregationalists. It's just that, to put it crassly, um, they lost the vote big time. Um, interestingly, though, and this, and Owen was at the same time kind of arguing for toleration. Um, yes, they lost the vote, but what's interesting is um, Presbyterianism never got imposed upon England at the point of a sword mm -hmm. because the parliamentary army, unlike the Westminster Assembly, was largely populated not by Presbyterians, but by nonconformist Congregationalists, Baptists. Most preeminent among them, of course, was their leader, their general, um, Oliver Cromwell. And Cromwell was not just their leader. He was also just a great military tactician, um, really a brilliant tactician and defeated the, and defeated the King's army. And so parliament won that civil war. And uh, Cromwell was a convinced congregationalist and also a member of parliament, the house of commons. Mm -hmm. And effectively uh, just to make it brief, he just said this army that just fought your war for you, who doesn't agree with the ecclesial settlement you've given us will not impose it on England. And without the point of that, that's the whole point about this article on the magistrate, which our North American Presbyterian friends for the most part cut that out of the Westminster assembly. Do right. Talk about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. uh, they don't like the idea that the magistrate with a sword in hand forces everyone to be Presbyterian. But of course that's what the Westminster assembly effectively settled on it's just mm. that the swords weren't willing yeah um the swords weren't willing and so it never happened it's i don't know it's kind of like during i mean it's an analogy not exact same thing but it's kind of like during covid when governors were giving unconstitutional stipulations about public gatherings for worship mm. and then lesser magistrates like elect sheriffs, for instance, county sheriffs who were elected to office, who took vows also to uphold the laws and the constitution of that state, perceiving this other magistrate's counsel to be unlawful, refused to deploy arms, so to speak, 
to impose the mm-hmm. other magistrates' demands. Well, that's kind of what you have analogously here. You have Parliament saying to its own army, you will impose Presbyterianism. And you have the army led by a parliamentarian populated by so many non-Presbyterian dissenters in a, in a sense saying, no. so Owen, anyhow, um, the King's head comes off in 1649. The reasons being that he committed an act of sedition against the Commonwealth. That's the accusation. Um, the Royalists among your listeners, Dan will not like that <laughs> version of it. Um, they would see, they would perhaps see this as something the sedition being on the side of the parliament and i'm not here to adjudicate that i don't i don't have a dog in the fight but uh <laughs> there's but he alleged was alleged to have hired a foreign catholic army to invade england mm. so he was the, the they had fought two civil wars within that decade and parliament had won them both and the king is now hiring effectively what seems like mercenary soldiers to them, Catholic foreigners to come in and fight the king's battle and open up yet a third front. But this time it's not English fighting English. It would be, I don't now memory will fail me. Maybe Irish uh, being Irish Catholics being hired to come in and fight English. And the parliament judged that to be sedition against the Commonwealth. Um, it gets complicated though, because remember Charles the first is also king of Ireland. So he's the king of, he's the, he's the king at home, but he's also the king abroad of foreign nations. And so when things don't go well in the nation where he lives, um, he hires or deploys an army from one of his other nations to invade his own nation. That's that's messy stuff. It's pretty complicated. Anyway, his head comes off, uh, regicide. That's, that's what we call that. Um, the cutting, the, the killing of a king. Um, And then the next day, Parliament would often invite preachers to come and preach sermons before Parliament. The day after Charles is executed, John Owen is invited to come and preach a sermon in front of Parliament. And he preaches the sermon, and then he offers two appendices in the published version of the sermon on schism and then a thing called a country essay. I think that's what it's called. And he argues for um, toleration and liberty of conscience. And it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing because he's arguing for it when he's sitting on top of the heap right now. He is, he is the, he's the, he's the darling of parliament, which now has just killed its own King. There is no King in England um, at this point, parliament's running the show and he's, and he's tapped to be the preacher to parliament. I mean, at this point, if you've got an agenda for the English church in which you're going to get everyone in line with your vision, now would be the time to do it. And Owen doesn't. In fact, he argues that now is the time to let Englishmen have, now this will be the challenge to understand, Owen, a, a, a certain measure of freedom in worship. And he's argue, he wants Presbyterians to be able to arrange themselves that way, Congregationalists, Baptists, Episcopalians. Um, in fact, when he became uh, Vice Chancellor of Oxford, uh, right opposite his door in all those years, when he was absolutely at his most politically powerful, there was, a, a, there was an Episcopalian church meeting and Owen makes no makes no attempts to uh, break it up. The question, the more challenging one, is what he would do with Roman Catholics. Um, 
there's so there was a um, an oath of allegiance that Catholics could take to the English crown. And Owen does seem willing to give freedom of religion and practice to Roman Catholics. So long as they take the oath of allegiance to the Roman crown, which is basically saying that the ultimate political power on earth is not the Pope. It's the English King or then Mm. parliament when there's no King. Because the whole concern about Catholicism was politically speaking, I mean, was not religious bigotry per se, not saying there couldn't have been that. It was that Catholics had an ultimate political allegiance to a Pope. And you have to just remember this about the Pope, even now about the Pope, that they're not, they're not merely ecclesiastics. Mm. They sit on a throne and the Vatican, even now the Vatican, it's, it's like the world's smallest country, but it is its own autonomous country. Um, it's its own Nate. It's, it's, it's its own autonomous political entity. If your ultimate allegiance is to the man who sits on Peter's throne in Rome, then if the interests of the Roman Catholic church ally themselves with the enemy of England, then suddenly the Catholics become, uh, sort of, um, potentially, traitorous Mm -hmm. allies of this foreign power to whom their deepest allegiance lies. So it's really political. You know, if in, in American politics, as I recall it, that was a concern when we elected our first Roman Catholic president, Mm -hmm. uh, in 1960, John F. Kennedy was John F. Kennedy's deepest allegiance to the American constitution or the Roman Pope. That was, I mean, that was, a question many people were asking, and that was a fear. Um, and that that was Owen's fear too in the 17th century. If because the difference, I mean, no, nobody thought in 1960 that the Vatican was going to be agitating behind some incursion by sea of our eastern seaboard or anything, or anything <laughs> like that. Um, but they're certainly thinking about things like that in the 17th century. You have Catholic Ireland, you have Catholic France. Uh, and they are not peaceful neighbors uh, with the English. And mm. so if you have a whole bunch of Catholic, if you have a whole bunch of English Catholics who feel a certain political bond and allegiance to French Catholics or Irish Catholics, that's that can't be tolerated. Owen would say you can't tolerate that, but that's bec- but that's purely for political protection. But if a Catholic takes the oath of allegiance, uh, to the throne, or I, I guess it's to parliament afterward. I don't know well enough on that. Then Owen would argue for his toleration. Um, it's, which is, in, he's not saying eh, Catholicism, who cares? Uh, it doesn't matter. He's just simply saying we, he argues that we should compel them not with swords or muskets um, or other instruments of torture that we should compel them uh, with arguments hmm. and that our disagreements should be sorted out with scripture and sound reason. So that's it, a big, uh, that's, a, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a big change. It's I think it's hot for us. That sounds like, yeah, okay. But that's a, yeah. that's a pretty avant-garde position to take in the middle of the 17th century. And it's a really perplexing position for someone to take when that person is actually in power. Mm. So, 
These are. Uh, yeah. Did some of that have to do with how they were worshiping too? Whether they were worshiping more in private versus public displays of worship? Did some of that come into play in in his understanding of toleration and and liberty of conscience? Yeah, he's. Uh, I think he's not going to. I mean, he, he doesn't. He doesn't want a. Um, you know, a Catholic mass out on the village green. Right. Um, yep. Uh, but he wants to say, but in, in your parish, in your Catholic parish church, um, if you've all taken the oath of allegiance, then he wants, then he thinks that the government position should be one of indulgence, mm. like keep an eye on them probably, but indulgence, uh, right. toleration. So maybe we should talk about sort of what's underneath this for him. I mean, a a big part of this is just conscience. And I I don't want to go if anyone, the articles, I think, free online so people can find Mm it. Um, But uh, and so you can kind of see what the titles and different topics are, because he's fighting Presbyterian. I mean, he writes whole long treatises against, I'll say it, against obnoxious Presbyterians, <laughs> against obnoxious Episcopalians. And then the case of John Vincent Kane, uh, who's a Jesuit, JBC, that's how he signs it uh, in his book, Fiat Lukes, he's fighting against a Roman Catholic. And, and the Catholics are pretty shrewd in as much as once you get sort of Protestant on Protestant warfare in the English church, the Catholics swoop in with promises of peace saying, look, if you would just come back to Rome, <laughs> all this intra-Protestant dissent would go away. The one holy Catholic and apostolic church that is Rome would sort of, it all be paradise, you know, and, and Owen, Owen just like dismantles this whole myth that Rome is just this wonderful kumbaya homogenous mm-hmm. thing uh, that that's a kind of mythology that's being projected by John Vincent Cain as he's fishing for Englishmen. That's how he puts him. You're an angler. That's what he calls them. An angler. You're out there fishing for Englishmen. So he's fighting Catholics. He's fighting Presbyterians. He's fighting Episcopalians. Uh, when I say fighting, I mean with words. Um, so his principles, um, the first one is liberty of conscience. And it gets a little complicated when he means liberty of conscience against, um, I think it's um, Daniel Caudry, who was a Presbyterian, and later Samuel Parker, who's an Episcopalian. When he when he's debating these guys, I think it might have been Parker later on, the Episcopalian, who wants to say to Owen, effectively, sure, you can have liberty of conscience. We, the English church, will allow you to have whatever private convictions in your heart you want to have in your heart. And Owen Owen wants to say, that's not actually liberty of conscience, because liberty of conscience is liberty to act. Mm. It's not just liberty to hold your own private beliefs. I think it's, I mean, it's a little bit silly to have people say, I'm I'm going to allow you to have your own opinion on this. How could you prevent anyone from having their right. own opinion? Uh, so it's just, it's just a kind of show of, to- it, it looks like toleration, but it's silly. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the question is free from what, free for whom, maybe I should put it that way. Mm-hmm. And he wants to say that the, that the conscience is free in so much as it is Godward and listening to the dictates of God within itself. Um he wants to say mm-hmm. that it is set free by Christ, although that's a little bit unclear in Owen, because he also argues that conscience is a natural right, even for the unbeliever. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit, so on one, le- like he'll argue for freedom of conscience because 
the conscience is free, but then are we talking about the freedom of the conscience from slavery to sin and to mm -hmm. ignorance? Are we talking about the freedom of the conscience that is purchased by Christ and applied by his blood, Christian liberty of conscience? Or are we talking about liberty of conscience as a kind of um, faculty psychology thing where there's just a natural liberty that humans have mm -hmm. in which they should comply with their conscience mm -hmm. as a kind of natural law principle? And I think Owen believes in both. And so it gets a little bit confusing um, when you're reading him on liberty of conscience, whether he's talking about the blood-bought blood liberty applied to the Christian or the natural liberty given by God uh, to every man. But his point is both are free. Now, both are not equally free or free in the same sense, uh, but that even the natural man should be should be free to hear the dictates of his conscience because unless he cauterizes his conscience or sears his conscience, his conscience is a rem is is like a little deputy of God, proclaiming mm -hmm. the law in his heart, and then he will go to Acts two fourteen and fifteen in evidence of that. Uh, so he wants to set. This is this is interesting. This is why he is willing to get to grant liberty of conscience. And he'll let the liberty of conscience, he'll, he'll make the liberty of conscience argument, liberty of conscience for um, even for Roman Catholics, for Episcopalians, for pagans. Um, he wants a liberty of conscience. Now, that doesn't mean we'll get to toleration in a second, but that doesn't mean that we have to tolerate necessarily everything that everyone else's conscience approves of. Right. But that the general default position should be that we. Do not violate conscience because while conscience can be twisted and bent and misinformed and 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 it can err, while all that's true, um, nevertheless, conscience is actually something that God has built into man mm -hmm. to restrain him from yep. evil by giving him an awareness of God's law, the natural law. The positive law, of course, requires holy scripture, right. but even without holy scripture. There is a law of God that is written on the heart of man, and conscience is the mechanism that speaks it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that it, how dare then we compel against conscience? Mm. Just even, even in general, that's his argument. Um, so his second, his second conviction is beside liberty of conscience, which is always, is, um, Freedom of oh, really a quick thought on that before we go to toleration. Does liberty of conscience correspond to freedom of religion? And those seem to be not exactly the same thing in Owen's mind. He thinks that there's a liberty of conscience that doesn't necessarily correspond to freedom of religion. Um, and he has that whole concern, uh, which is, you know, when does freedom of religion become freedom from religion? Uh, so he's, he's concerned about that, but still he doesn't reduce those, uh, to each other. Uh, he thinks that freedom of religion and, uh, liberty of conscience and freedom of religion are not strictly identical. His second proposal is toleration. Uh, and it's a, it's a pretty highly attenuated kind of toleration compared to sort of a, a, a post John Locke liberty, libertarian Let's call it classical liberalism. This is not classical Western liberalism that Owen has in mind. Um, although it's also, but it, 
but it has certain shared formal features with it. Yep. Um, undoubtedly. There are just certain things that it's going to have in common. Um, I think, you know, Owen, Owen advocates for a state church, yep. but he advocates for a state church that no state would probably ever really want. Because it's a, st for instance, at one point he was in the 1650s, he was appointed to help set up a, um, a board of triers, triers for the Church of England. The Church of England is really a strange thing in the, in the 1650s because it's not officially anything. It's not officially Episcopalian, Presbyterian, or Congregationalists, uh, certainly not Baptist, but it's, it's, a, it's officially not officially anything. And there's a, there are boundaries, but you can sort of freely, you, but it, but it, there's, but it's still a national church that's supported by the parliament. And so the board of triers was a group that basically examined ministers. Like it would be like a committee on credentials and ordination um, that you might have that tests, tests those who are seeking ordination, but it also would examine ministers who were considered to be unorthodox. The tri the triers was an examination board that kind of checked up on the orthodoxy of aspiring ministers or of those already in office. Uh, and yet it's a strange, I, I'm trying to remember my numbers here, but I think it's something like it was populated by 17 Presbyterians, 11 Congregationalist pastors. And if memory serves me, also four particular Baptists at one point or another also functioned on the board of triers for the church of England. So it's a strange, <laughs> like you think Baptist and Anglican are like the, the most wildly disparate things. And yet of course, Baptist came out of Anglicanism. Right. Uh, and then once Anglicanism wasn't anything in particular, suddenly the Baptists are sitting on the uh, like ordination council and they're examining the, they're examining the orthodoxy of Episcopalians. The assumption though, I think of the board of triers was that you were not trying their particular ecclesial features. Like are they Episcopal Presbyterian or, or mm -hmm. independence? You're not, you weren't examining that you were examining more like, do these people hold to the ancient ecumenical creeds of the church? Mm. Are they basically in line with the 39 articles of the church of England, how the Baptist factored into it? Maybe that was just like an honorary position. <laughs> uh, my, my recollection is that a couple Baptists participated. Anyhow, um, Owen's, Owen's thing on toleration uh, was that there should be toleration for everyone, for all Christians who agree on the fundamentals. Mm. And for him, those, that would be things like, that would, that would be doctrine of God, mm -hmm. Christology, Nicaea, Con, uh, Chalcedon, uh, Constantinople, one, two, and three, I should think. Um, I mean, these are the, the uh, Ephesus, mm -hmm. the major early ecumenical creeds, and the, basically the, the chief articles of the 39 articles were right. non-negotiables. Yep. Uh, and then we should live and let live within those bounds. Although in the 1650s, his uh, his patron, Oliver Cromwell, has a view of toleration in England that is really way ahead of its time. Uh, he op he uh, he is the one who lifts the ban on Jews in England mm. and Jews under Oliver Cromwell for the first time in like a thousand years or something like that um, return to England. 
during the interregnum period under Cromwell. And there's no, there's nothing from Owen protesting that move by Cromwell Mm -hmm. and Owen would have, in other words, he was, he would speak his mind to Cromwell. Uh, And where's the protestation against Jews living among us? So there is a little bit of, some people will see a a sort of a, a forerunner here of the classical liberal Western tradition. Uh, when I say classical liberal, obviously I mean it in that sense of kind of a freedom of religion approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and Owen, though, at the same time thinks that the, the magistrate has the duty to support those churches and ministers who are advancing the true gospel. Mm-hmm which means Baptist, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, and Episcopalians. And as long as the Catholics aren't seditious and they swore the oath of allegiance, just leave them alone. <laughs> so that's his, uh, th- that's his approach. Now, like how so it, the whole question of the magistrate question is a hard one for us uh, mm-hmm. because at, at a certain point, if you expect the magistrate to support the true gospel, then you're – you're really operating on the assumption that the magistrate is going to be a Christian. Um, and as soon as that is an assumption you can't make anymore, then it seems like the whole arrangement is in a pickle. And you think they would have figured that out pretty quickly, given they just killed the king. And <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's just I think for them, that probably was inconceivable, though, in a way. I mean, o- mm-hmm. Owen will say things like he never really met an atheist or something like that. I mean, he's living in a world that is just absolutely suffused with one species or another of Episcopalianism mm-hmm. or I'm not. Uh, I mean, sorry, of Christianity. Oh, yeah. yeah although yeah. although his argument against killing heretics is really interesting, which is if you're if the whole point because people were arguing that we should kill heretics for the common good, basically to keep their poisonous ideas out of our society, right. we should kill heretics. Mm-hmm. And Owen, Owen kind of pulls that thread to see where that rationale goes. And he said that you, you could argue for the wholesale slaughter of Mohammedans and pagans based on that rationale. Yeah. And he thinks that would be evil. Mm. He thinks that it, he thinks that it would be evil to mount a, to mount a genocide mm. against pagans and Mohammedans, m- Muslims. Mm. Um, and his argument is if the whole point is let us rid the world of all humans who have less than orthodox ideas about God. So as to preserve the true knowledge of God, that become that becomes just a, a bloody tyranny mm-hmm. right away. The rash, the rationale of that is actually terrifying. So there's a you, you see this in O, and I I think this is there there are certain sentiments here that are really commendable. I, I think especially just that his argument that if you if you want to bend so if you want to bend someone to your position, do it with good arguments, mm-hmm. prayer, conversation, the Bible, sound reason. Live peaceably with all men, as much as it depends on you. Right. Almost like Saint Paul said at first. Yeah. <laughs> good. No, that's good. Um, so why, why do you think it, we touched a little bit upon this earlier? Why do you think some of these definitions are so different to modern ears? Like understanding what religion is in the 17th century versus what we understand it now in an American Western context or toleration. Why do you think there's such a, a gap there? Well, I think for him, when he talks about liberty of conscience, it's it's not the equivalent of the modern be true to yourself. Mm, yeah, it, it's not. 
it is not a an early rustic form of identity politics mm. um because for him the conscience is only really free when it is godward and he would say that even with regard to the peg, like, well, does the pagan have a godward conscience? Conscience sometimes, yes. Yeah, uh, pagans feel bad for doing bad stuff. Yep. Right. And Owen right. would say that's a, there's a godwardness in that conscience mm -hmm. still. So his, I don't think his point is only Christians have good consciences, and so only they should be tolerated. But it's but anything that is anyone who says, um, you know. I'm born this way, and this is just who I am, and I'm being true to myself. Owen said, Owen would say, if the self to whom you're being true is indulging the flesh and the mind and walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, then know that the magistrate should, in fact, restrain those practices. Uh, if you get into something like Satanism, witchcraft, mm -hmm. He would he would say that the magistrate would have an obligation for the common good to suppress witchcraft statues um, in public places, right? Like yeah, recently, similar. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, even recently now, right? That there are arguments for what they think are the although it's always wild to me that they look so grotesque when Satan parades as an angel of light. But um, anyhow, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> still, it's I, I mean there there would be limits. I, I mean sir, I don't I'm not suggesting for a moment that he thinks that they should be doing um witch hunts right or throwing or throwing alleged witches in rivers to see if they float when of course they won't because they can't swim like in as much uh, as it's affecting the civil order yeah essentially. he thinks it should be he thinks it should be suppressed yep. and kept out of the public sphere for yep. sure and not tolerated but I think we need to be careful and say that doesn't that doesn't mean this is just Salem witch trials all over again. Either. Right. Um, yeah. I I think he thinks that you should you should use the sword by the sword here. I think force. That's all he means mm -hmm. to suppress that stuff. So, yeah, it's not a in that respect. It's not just the modern laissez affair. Live and let live. It's certainly not. A Christian equivalent of libertarianism mm. um but there are forms of liberty that aren't libertarianism in terms of a comprehensive leave me alone he doesn't think the government should just leave you alone mm -hmm. um in fact owen probably would be happy with a government more involved in your life than maybe most of us would um we go now but no, constitution. <laughs> but he also has, but at the same, but I also, but he, but, but these are not like equivalent contexts. Right. Right. He has the assumption that whoever is going to be on the throne of England, or if there ever, if there is nobody on the throne of England, at least whoever's running parliament is going to be a Trinitarian Christian. Right. I mean, that's his default position. He's going to believe in the Ten Commandments. Like he wouldn't mm -hmm. publicly say, he wouldn't publicly repudiate the moral law of God, even if he is a kind of scoundrel in mm -hmm. his private life, as as we know many of these magistrates were. But nevertheless, so Owen's kind of part of the reason I think he's okay with Parliament, the King being a little more up in your business, uh, is because these are our, his default assumption is these are all Christian people. Mm. Um. Which is to say that that whole what 
whatever he thought the involvement of the state should be in your life, which is a lot less than the Presbyterians were saying it should have been, <laughs> but whatever, whatever the involvement of the state should be in your life, more than we might be comfortable with, but also he, he's thinking about a very different kind of state. Yes, mm -hmm. they did horrendous things, but you could appeal to a common set of biblical moral principles yeah. to make your argument in the public sphere. Mm. Um, so maybe that's some, I mean, just as we try to appropriate Owen and think him into our context, those mm -hmm. are some of the adjustments that we would have to make. And what are some principles, you know, understanding that difference in historical context, what are some principles that we could even apply today that Owen uh, presented in these regards? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think the feeling of this in particular, in terms of like mounting an argument and defense of nonconformity is something that's going to seem strange to kind of the Anglo-American, even Western European culture. I think in certain Eastern European uh, cultures where the Orthodox Church absolutely dominates an articulate expression for liberty of conscience and toleration of nonconformity might be of more sort of real interest. Uh, but oh, I think that what we can take away even in our North American context is Owen's restraint in calling other people heretics. That's mm -hmm. just, a, he, he's willing to do it. I mean, if you've ever read his stuff against the Sassinians, against John Biddle and uh, yep, his John critique Biddle. of the Rakovian catechism. Yep. I mean, <laughs> oh, Owen can, Owen can, throw down on you know her critiquing heretics like anyone i mean he's he's good at it but that's i, I think but also he wants to say let's be let's be restrained in readily accusing someone of heresy or thinking that any little theological error must be evidence of some lurking gigantic heresy. Um, he has very good counsel on not doing that. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think that's helpful too, especially I think with, with social media being the way it is, we do have a tendency to be quick to jump on other people's errors and, jump to conclusions like that instead of having a restrained patience uh, with other brothers who might wander into error and they just need to be brought back or or even with those who may persist over time. Um, but just having that gracious patience, you know, patience there and him taking it to that, you know, that higher level of the state. Um, I think those are some helpful um, guidances there. Yeah, this. Sorry, I, I glitched out there. You might see that on your recording. My apologies. Oh, no worries. No worries. Um, so I think that's the. But I, I think the willingness to, the 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 restraint, the um, the wanting not to think that someone else is a heretic, even if they're saying it wrong. Owen, mm. uh, Owen. So that's that's one point. The other one is his argument that there should that that there's something that we can have of unity that isn't uniformity. Mm. Um. This is maybe this one's difficult uh, for some of us. Uh, you know, if you have a book of church order, uh, th that's going to give a certain kind of definition uh, to the look of one's worship. 
And Owen's not saying throw out books of church order, but what he wants to say is, but if you have relationships with Christians in different churches who don't have that book of church order, even if you think it would be wise for them to do so, that there can be a disagreement on these particulars, on these secondary matters that doesn't have to explode Christian unity. Mm. And I think that's that's a constant theme. He even, he even begins, and I... I I started the uh, the article with a statement that he makes where he, he says um, the utmost of our aim is to but pass the residue of our pilgrimage in peace, serving God in our way of devotion. Mm. And he, while he deals, and I've argued in some writings that this is arguably the most recurring theme of his entire public career which mm. sounds strange to us because we this is not what he's most famous for. Right. Um, Holy Spirit, glory of Christ, sin yeah. and temptation, Hebrews commentary. I mean, th- these are the, th- those are the big, the big hits, but the, but this is, um, this is something very early in his career. He feels it at Oxford when he leaves under, under Laud and he's dealing with it all the way up until about a year before he dies. It's his last major battle. And then along the way, He's battling it when he's on the top and when he's on the bottom and all points in between. It's just, it keeps coming up. But he, this is something that we could take away from that, Daniel, is while he mounts the defense, it is very clear in those writings that he does not relish it. And I think this is, there, there's something about this just in terms of how we are nonconformists that. We don't relish the disagreement, even if it's well held. Mm. Yeah. Uh, hmm. I, I mean, personally, that's a hard one. That's a hard one because uh, we're sinners, and mm-hmm. we want to make we want to make these. Uh, we take pride in these positions, perhaps, mm. and then they become abusive they can become abusive and so owens you can just you can just see that he's he's burdened by the fact that this keeps coming up he feels compelled to make a defense because the pressures are really intense but he also feels compelled to make a a defense when the pressures are totally off of him Mm. uh and what he's really after is christian unity and he doesn't think that christian unity has to look like everybody a member of the episcopalian state church or Mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, so that's, I think that's, there's something to that, like cultivating a sort of Catholicity that also doesn't sort of sell out in your local, you know, on your local church, but at the same time is looking for a Christian fraternity. Owen is, Owen is very clearly looking for a Christian fraternity that is bigger than congregationalism without watering down his congregationalism. That's even as you read all this stuff on schism and all all of that, that's actually something that comes through and it, it's somewhat inarticulate. It's more of a mood mm. that just kind of hovers in the writings. Um, and I, but I think it's one of the important lessons to be learned from it. Fantastic. Yeah. And it seems like Owen was, was well ahead of his time. I mean, pushing against the grain as he was with the Presbyterians, um, and I think that speaks to how God used him. And, and clearly he had some influence upon the particular Baptist because their second confession came later, it seems. Yeah. Um, and, and there is, you know, that carrying forward the banner in terms of those things and developing them further. 
Absolutely. Um, well, they and and certainly they were the beneficiaries, right, of Owen's position, both personally because he took a he had friends who were particular Baptists, wrote letters of commendation on their behalf, mm -hmm. argued for their toleration as well. Um, and so in him they found a kind of they and many other forms of English descent found a a champion. Um, it's interesting with the Presbyterians in 1662, when there was the act of uniformity and they were all kicked out of their churches on St. Bartholomew's Day, uh, <laughs> the great ejection, that some have, some have described that as really the end of Puritanism in one respect, in as much as now they're no, they were no longer part of the Church of England after that. And so mm. they also were no longer nonconformists in the technical sense, in as much as they weren't really even Anglicans anymore. Now they were officially dissenters. And so some people will distinguish between nonconformity and dissent. Um, and what's kind of interesting is that after that, um, there, you know, there, there are no Presbyterians critiquing Owen in the, in the 1660s and seventies and early eighties. Now it's, it's Catholics and Episcopalians that are picking on him. Mm. Um, although that's complicated. I mean, Charles II was a Roman Catholic and it's reputed that he sort of on the sly would direct funds for relief of the suffering nonconformists, um, even though he was a, Catholic king. Um, and part of the, maybe part of the reason was uh, Catholics also were nonconformists uh, mm -hmm. at that time. And so there was a kind of supporting the co-belligerents, at least that's one theory that's been offered. But Owen, I think the point with Owen that's really remarkable is that he's, he's exemplary in his manner. Um, his arguments are 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 very biblical. Um, he demonstrates real Christian charity and that his position is effectively unchanged to the duration of his career, no matter what his fortunes were uh, at the moment. And if nothing else, we I think what we learn is how to how to disagree agreeably on secondary matters. Mm. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Dolzell, great stuff. Thank you so much for your time and for discussing these things. Very important issues, even though they are, you know, like you said, secondary matters. They're still important to us today and especially i think as we're going into you know kind of this resurgence of political theory in reform circles it's helpful to revisit these old doctrines so thank you for your time and really appreciate it thanks dan appreciate it all right everyone thank you for joining us today and lord willing we will be back next week have a great evening